Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. It's the 4th of October 2021. We are in the Visegrad Inside studio in our office in Warsaw. Wojciech Przybylski, editor in chief of Visegrad Inside, and Kamil Jarończyk, managing editor at Visegrad Insight. Kamil has just assumed a new role in the uh, in the team uh, and has been promoted to managing editor. And you know we, he's been with us for quite some time. Now, um, after some considerable experience uh, with reports, with foresight, um, it was your first. Uh, foresight, monthly foresight that uh, you you have uh, supervised now. Um, I'll ask you what's what's in it. Of course, you can read it if you're a subscriber of Visegrad Insight. You would already have it by by this time in your mailboxes, and of course, you can you can um, uh, see it behind a paywall on our site. Camille, what's the big story of this week? Yeah, well, this week um, it's uh, quite interesting. I think the number one uh, story that we came out with was uh, Babish uh, was implicated, Prime Minister Andrei Babish, uh, in the Pandora Papers. Um, it turns out that uh, he has uh, put some quite he has money laundered some, quite some considerable funds through um, uh, corpor- uh, corporations offshore um, uh, in different places around the world. Um, uh, in such a way so that they don't lead back to him, but um, through the journalism, it has been led back. Um, it seems to be um, about a purchase uh, to purchase a chateau in the south of France. Well, uh, purchase chateau or not, this was 15 million uh, euro altogether. The funds that were attributed to uh, Andrei Babish through the investigative journalism Investigatie.cz. I think that was the portal that took part in the combined international effort of. Uh, investigative journalism. And they found out, of course, many global uh, politicians uh, involved in schemes how to avoid double taxation. There is another Polish businessman involved. There is a businesswoman also from Poland. Otherwise, of the notable figures, I think it was Tony Blair. But from Czech Republic, this is Andrei Babish. And the really important thing is how meaningful it could become for the upcoming uh, Czech election. So what are the projections right now as we speak? Yeah, well, it looks like uh, Anno is likely, before these um, uh, revelations, that Anno was likely to uh, take the role as like the coalition creator um, in the Czech Republic, um, leading to a very similar situation as it is right now. Well, let's add that they would not probably create a coalition together with the two other leading parties. They would need support of the fringe parties, the small parties, and the big question mark is whether they pass the threshold. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Czech, the Czech Republic, as uh, Poland and other Central European, a lot of Central other, other Central European states, uh, has uh, uh, 5% threshold. Um, and uh, their current uh, uh, coalition members, uh, which the president actually comes from, uh, Milos Zeman, the Social Democrats, uh, are not projected to uh, pass the 5% threshold. So the question is not whether Anno is going to get through, but whether um, parties um, more on the fringe will get through so that they can create a coalition with. Um, it is known that Babish is, uh, is able to create coalitions with a wide variety of people. They, he comes from a quite a right-wing uh, party, but uh, has uh, created a coalition for so long uh, with the Social Democrats. Um, uh, he- ba- ba- Babish does not come from a right-wing party himself. Uh, no. Uh, Anno is a member of ALDE, but I think what you're, al- you're uh, alluding to is his, his fascination with Viktor Orban in his, exactly. recent, <laughs> in his recent trip to, to Hungary, the, the very same trip 
which uh, Mr. Morawiecki, Prime Minister of Poland, has declined to to participate in, and that was the the big gathering of the alt alt conservative, let's call them, uh, the 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 the, the uh, freedom fighters um, against abortion rights, women's abortion, reproductive rights, and. Um, yeah, different different other uh, elements of you would say the Bible Belt agenda in Central Europe, and then at this meeting, Mr. Babish, when he arrived, he was welcomed with a cordiality uh, a pope would des- deserve. <laughs> Viktor Orban was uh, really uh, stepping in to to welcome his his guest. And Andrei Babish has been uh, looking for a true endorsement, which he received, I think, verbally. Viktor Orban also endorsed him. Also some lovely photos of the of the two. Um, it's interesting that you bring up the Pope, because the Pope actually came. Uh, this was in a previous weekly uh, outlooks. Uh, the Pope actually came, but the photos from that don't seem as cordial as uh, Mr. Babish's visit. No, definitely not for, for uh, Viktor Orban, who, who doesn't... Um, doesn't portray himself as a as a close, let's say, strategic ally of of, of the Pope. The Pope is into um, well uh, cleaning the stables uh, mission, so to say, while uh, pointing out to corruption, uh, nepotism, uh, whatever other malpractices within the uh, democratic system. Uh, he was not looking to be associated uh, with Viktor Orban, and Viktor Orban didn't have that much of um, uh, of the uh, Catholic background also to liaise with him. But with Mr. Babish, interestingly, a post-communist uh, involved with the security apparatus of the previous regime from Slovakia, um, he, he, didn't seem, uh, he didn't seem to have had, uh, an issue. Okay, um, so what's your take? Will, will that uh, potentially be impactful or? Um, I think that it can um, influence maybe more undecided voters. Um, Andrei Babish famously ran on a platform of anti-corruption. So to be implicated in corruption himself uh, might give more, um, uh, more uh, fire towards uh, more um, uh, non-establishment parties such as the pirates uh, who um, who haven't been in government before and haven't been implicated in uh... that can definitely energize their basis but at the same time uh, I look at it from the Hungarian point of view if indeed his voters and undecided voters are um, are uh, kind of the voters that Viktor Orban can also lure or seduce to uh, to him uh, to him himself then Andrei Babish might simply play, you know, um, uh, you know, sh- shake his shoulder, the, the sh- shrug his shoulders, and say that you know everybody is corrupt a bit, and that that ha- that is nothing nothing more than other people do. And then you know, Viktor Orban endorses me, and despite all these allegations, people like him and elect him. So far, that was true. And he may still uh, keep his points um, uh, for the for the game. So I think it might not be actually as much uh, yeah. impactful, except for energizing the base of the of the oppositional parties. Yeah, we should also remember that the Czechs are the same who voted for Miloš Zeman. Uh, yes, the- and that was of course uh, Zeman was winning the the recent election. So yeah. that tells a lot about. Uh, what the playing field in the democratic races in Central Europe currently are. And the sensitivity towards the topic of corruption is going to be tested now also in Poland, where three uh, three major 
uh, media outlets, uh, Radio Z, Gazette of Borsha and Onet, launched also a major investigation. Um, they, they did uh, a thorough examination of positions in state-owned or controlled companies um, in the Polish, Polish public sector, um, Polish public companies sector, um, where where posts are distributed according to um, well the level of loyalty to the party rather than the level of competence, and uh, the the journalistic investigation is bringing into the light not straightforward straightforwardly speaking corruption as paying money into someone's pocket f under the table, but uh, the, the issue of nepotism, which is uh, also a form of uh, corrupting the democracy, but on a higher level. And that process uh, of, of paying lots and lots of money to people who are completely incompetent has been taking place in Poland for quite some time. It was for the first time recently, in the last uh, week really, that it was revealed um, in, in, and, and um, explained in detail, creating on one hand a sense of public uh, concern, but I think even more importantly, highlighting who owns how much portfolio and who is who in the government, in the public companies. And now in the spotlight, all those people seem to be really uneasy about uh, their position and whether they are safe from uh, any upcoming purge. Let's remember that Mr. Kaczynski has announced uh, that there will be some sort of uh, fight against nepotism. And I think uh, so far, uh, a couple of months ago, that that brought a list of amazingly big number 13 names i think that were considered to be part of a part of that scheme and i think here we're talking about hundreds of uh, of names uh, who have been documentedly uh, employed simply because being some family connections uh, and and clearly this is the case of nepotism the polls might not be so uh, forgiving or they will be, and that is also telling us a, li a little bit about the state of Polish democracy. Well, I'm here more on the hopeful side. Yeah, I hope so as well. Um, one thing that, um, uh, as a poll, uh, we do have is uh, envy, or not envy, but uh, uh, we have a deep sense of uh, justice and uh, people who work very hard don't uh, like it when uh, somebody who just has good connections uh, gets to higher places. So we'll see how that turns out. Um, in Poland, it's quite a specific, uh, not not specific just to Poland, but in the way that how um, informal networks uh, run run alongside the formal networks in Poland. Uh, in um, in the Czech Republic, we have Andrei Babiš, who is prime minister. In Hungary, we have uh, Viktor Orban, who is prime minister. And uh, in a lot of these uh, countries, uh, the people who, ta who take the power have formal power in the country. But in Poland, Morawiecki, uh, the Prime Minister Morawiecki and the President uh, uh, Andrzej Duda, they are um, important people within the system. But uh, within the party system, which isn't a formal system, uh, the real person who uh, for a long time was just a normal back backbencher, but the leader of the party was actually uh, Jarosław Kaczynski. Um, so maybe uh, it is connected in some way to this uh, uh, informality uh, informality of uh, power structures um, that uh, nepotism is uh, due to loyalty, just as these uh, powerful figures officially are loyal um, uh, to uh, par parliamentarian. 
uh, maybe that has uh, sort of uh, affected the mentality as well. Yeah, and for for all these stories, you can uh, check the archives of Visegrad Insight. I mean, on on Czech Republic, there is a fresh interview um, on the situation of the of the of the rule of law, really, uh, and the, the question of the media. Uh, in in uh, increasingly uneven playing field in politics of the Czech Republic that has been conducted by Lubos Palata with a former minister of justice of uh, Czech Republic. Then you can look into the archives on informality to look uh, look for uh, Edith's Goods article who, who has been in the section on the rule of law um, and on also on politics explaining the informal rules of the game or <laughs> uh, the, the the lack of uh, lack of the transparency on the rule of the game in uh, in the cases of Poland and to a large extent also in in Hungary but I wanted to hint also to two stories that are also in this light important uh, one from uh, Slovakia where there is uh, there is an ongoing uh, crisis within the coalition the coalition is holding up so far, but the leader of the Nationalist Party has been abusing the positions to uh, also to waive some prosecutor cha prosecutorial charges on one of the uh, corrupt politicians, while the government overall has won the elections as a coalition government um, on the ticket of fighting corruption and, and, deep, and reforming deeply reforming uh, Slovak justice system. And at the same time, in, in Hungary, we just had Klara Dobrev uh, from the Socialist uh, Party performing uh, the best in the primaries of the opposition, United Opposition electing their future candidate for the prime minister. The first round uh, gave uh, Klara Dobrev a score of 38%, while Gergli Karacson, mayor of Budapest, got 272 with uh, Peter Makrizai with 20% uh, and taking the, the third position. Now, the important thing is how in the Hungarian uh, society, Klara Dobrev, uh, wife of uh, pr former Prime Minister Julcan, who was infamously uh, famous for, uh, for saying, uh, for speaking the F word uh, about his own nation on the record and adm admitting on the, in the secret recording, of course, but in front of the, uh, of the parliament's uh, members and, and his government that they've been lying to their own people and they've been misappropriating uh, the funds. So famously corrupt politician's wife uh, is there at the forefront uh, with her husband at her side, and somehow Hungarian population seems not to uh, not to care that much. It's, uh, so I'm watching this space very closely and with much hopes actually that uh, well at the end of the day in the second round of the primaries by the end of the month uh, that will be in fact a different candidate, uh, even though the allocation of seats, allocation of even the candidates. Uh, for the seats will uh, will be uh, to the party of Clara Dobrev and the wife of Mr. Jurchani advantage. So a big topic for October seems to be corruption, but maybe we just read the headlines of what else is in store, what we focus in the monthly foresight for, uh, for the wrap up of uh, this part of the podcast. No. So, uh, Camille, what else is there in the foresight? Uh, yeah, um, in uh, Hungary, we, of course, uh, have this. But another thing that's quite interesting is uh, gas. Um, um, 
we uh, all know that uh, Nord Stream 2 has been built, but um, is not in effect yet. And um, uh, currently there is a sort uh, there is a pressure on uh, Ukraine from Russia. Um, also from Hungary, there has been a new deal on gas, uh, pri- uh, buying gas from Russia that completely uh, circumvents uh, Ukraine through other uh, means such as uh, Turkstream. Uh, so Hungary is still buying gas from Russia, but uh, tr- Ukraine will not get the transit, uh, the transit money, uh, and many, many other uh, stories. Uh, very worth, uh, very worthwhile to uh, to read, in my opinion. Yeah, there is also uh, there is also a reminder that there is a lot going on in the European uh, Parliament, in the European legislation when it comes to green. Green Deal uh, legislation packages and the details of which are very impa- impactful for for the region, include I mean specifically for the north south connectivity. As a lot of infrastructure is is to be built uh, still uh, part of the Three Cs initiative um, kind of framework also uh, to increase the the connectivity across uh, across Europe in in the eastern central eastern Europe central eastern part of the European Union. Well, that's that was a lot, and um, happy to to be back. In fact, also in in, in the office after some travels during the summer and uh, part of the uh, my personal stay at the uh, at the hospices of the uh, Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. Uh, um, as a, as a fellow, I should also mention that uh, the the hospitality of the uh, Viennese Institute and the Erste Foundation um, finally came to the uh, to the end for for September and the non residence parts begin, which. Uh, which reunites me with the team, and it's really good to. Yeah, we're glad to have you back, Wojciech. Yeah, it's not the same without you. <laughs> yeah, well, it was it was more difficult on the long distance, and in person, it's always much easier. Hopefully, pandemic allows to do that. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, the the decline of pandemic results uh, will allow to do that. Okay, um, we'll be back in a week. Yeah, see everyone, and uh, keep a lookout for the weekly outlooks and the monthly foresights for more stories like this. Hello everyone, I'm Kamil Jarenczyk and joining me is Mr. Marcin Zaborowski, um, fellow at uh, Visegrad Insight. And we are going to talk about um, the um, Central European reaction to AUKUS, the AUKUS fiasco. Well, thank you Kamil for having me. Uh, it's nice to be in good company. Uh, let's just say that uh, I'm, I'm a little bit worried that I may have a slightly disappointed, uh, disappointing result, uh, answer to your question because I don't think that the region actually thinks a great deal about the issue at all. Uh, mm. I mean, I, I think that uh, there was uh, the Polish reaction was kind of interesting because uh, Poland's president decided that this was the right moment to express criticism of Joe Biden's administration. Uh, and he did it in the way that um, uh, he, when he was at the United Nations uh, uh, Security Council in New York, he was interviewed on the matter. He said that he fully supports the French uh, and the French objections to the AUKUS, and that now all the rest of the EU should see how Poland feels about the Nord Stream 2. So the connection is, was being made here, uh, which seemed rather odd to those who were commenting on the matter from abroad, such as, you know, some, some French journalists, they were kind of scratching their heads as trying to find a, 
uh, a link between the gas pipeline and the uh, you know transfer of nuclear technology to uh, ninth country in the world, meaning Australia. So uh, that that was the only really truly noticeable reaction, and clearly reaction which was driven by you know Poland's own strategic perspective, but also by its domestic interests. Yeah. As for the rest of the region, I don't think that you know that there has been anything truly noticeable. At least nothing that I, that I personally registered. Uh, and I do tend to follow regional um, security policies. There was, uh, you know, the, the issue which was being registered was that, that there is a tripartite uh, pact that, but it may have some implications for the coherence of NATO, and uh, it may be may signify America's engagement or uh, greater engagement in Asia, Asia Pacific, perhaps to some detriment of America's engagement in in Europe. But you know, nothing truly. Um, alarmist, nothing really of uh, significance in terms of like, uh, you know, defense ministers, foreign ministers expressing something, uh, some kind of a regional, uh, you know, perspective on this issue. That hasn't happened simply. Very interesting, yes, because it did have some register in other parts, at least in Western Europe, uh, amongst the French, noticeably. And that uh, leads us to another question about um, uh, how is uh, strategic autonomy perceived? There's been more talk about strategic autonomy. Maybe you can help us uh, understand what what is strategic autonomy and how maybe the region, at least uh, in Central Europe, maybe views strategic autonomy. Well, it, it really depends how we look at the strategic autonomy. If we look at predominantly in terms of security and defense, then again, the region hasn't got that much to offer, frankly. If we look at the strategic autonomy from the perspective of, you know, creating a technological base in Europe, uh, then yes, then there are some interesting things happening here, uh, especially in the Danube region. Uh, when we look into the Danube base, there, there have been intense talks between uh, the, um, the Austrians, the Czechs and the Slovaks, to create the Danube technic- technological valley. You know, there is a cluster of technologically advanced uh, companies there which are using the term strategic autonomy to, you know, apply for grants and also to to pursue cross-border um, uh, strategy in, in, in boosting uh, technological capabilities of the region. Uh, but I, I presume that you are mostly asking about security and defense, uh, and so now that's interesting. If you talk about uh, strategic autonomy and you are Polish, you you almost immediately think about security and defense. If you are Slovak or Czech, you don't. Mm. Yeah, they they would always talk about things like the Czechs and Slovaks. They talk about things like uh, uh, you know green technology, like technological base, like um, you know the digital digital technology. They don't talk about security and defense. And uh, for, for Poles, uh, perhaps for Romanians the same, uh, when we talk about strategic autonomy, that really means about, you know, building a defense security capabilities inside the EU, which could uh, somehow uh, become autonomous from, uh, from our engagement in NATO and our relationship with the, with the United States. So uh, we and and that split between you know the countries in the Danube region and the countries of uh, you know of bigger size 
but also of greater geopolitical exposure, such as Poland and Romania, is is meaningful. Uh, so, uh, so in that in that context, uh, I think that there are two or three countries in in the region which actually care about security and defense. Uh, the vast majority, uh, you know, yes, they, you know, it's an important issue, but they do not invest considerably in in in, in these capabilities, uh, and it's. The two countries, meaning Poland and Romania, who are very serious about security and defense, at the same time, they are very edgy about anything to do with uh, with the notion of the EU becoming more autonomous in terms of having a capacity to act in defense realm outside of NATO. So that's, that's a paradox. That those who are capable or perhaps most interested are at the same time very committed to transatlantic relations and they are very suspicious of creating anything autonomous of NATO. Yes, um, be- being in Poland myself, I definitely under- understand. But uh, So there isn't really a unified response within the region. There are those... Uh, no, no, there is Yes, no, no. Um, and um, as you know, within the EU, there is the common security and defense uh, policy. There is a battle group uh, even within the EU, never, never been used, but it is there. What is your take on the prospect of the EU Council maybe entrusting the CSDP uh, missions to a group of member states, for example, like something along the lines of um, a coalition of the willing? Well, in a sense, I mean, this is happening already. I mean, uh, you know, the EU uh, missions in the context of CSDP are always coalitions of the willing because it is the, the case of uh, uh, only those states uh, participate who want uh, to participate. Uh, it, you know, these missions are not subject of majority voting. So uh, only five countries in the EU have a planning capacity so they can actually lead, uh, lead a mission like that. So it almost always requires either France or Germany uh, to, predominantly France actually, to, to, to organize you know, the, the mission in terms of planning capacities and other states to contribute to that. To that yeah? It's almost always, as I said, you know, a coalition of the willing. Uh, and, and very often uh, a reflection of the relationship with, the, with, with France, Germany or other state which is you know, more, uh, more capable to, to hold these, uh, these operations. 